0: Product placement opportunity. So, we're making up for it this morning. Youth are raising funds for camp. We're not peddling wares on you. If this is your first time. Don't think, do they always sell things from the pulpit? No, this isn't normal. This is for a fundraiser. So, I want to encourage you all to grab one of your mugs. We've got, um, I think, enough for everyone to have like five. We, we've got a lot of them. So, just going to set this right here. We're going to be in Galatians 6 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there. And uh, at Cross Point, we always open uh, our Sunday mornings praying for three different things. First, we pray for a fellow church, uh, a fellow local church, and their pastor. Then we pray for different neighborhoods, which this morning we'll be praying for the neighborhoods in cattle mills. And then um, we also pray for um, people groups uh, across the world. And this morning, we're going to pray particularly for just refugees in Germany. A little more generally. So, y'all pray with me and then we'll dive into the word. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Uh, that is something we proclaim every time we gather. We are thankful for the time this morning that we have been given to gather and for having a reason to gather in Christ. Um, particularly this morning, Lord, we want to lift up a few different things. First, we want to pray for Covenant Fellowship just right down the road from us and for their pastor, Todd Barnes. Um, we pray that you would bless them this morning, that their time in worship would be sweet and encouraging, that you would um, let uh, Pastor Todd have a clear mind and a clear heart as he communicates the message that you've given to him for the people this morning. I pray that you would continue to grow their church in a healthy way, and that they would be salty, bright, and aromatic to our community, as we all should be. Lord, we also pray for uh, the neighborhoods in Caddo Mills. Um, Lord, we have a lot of different areas in Greenville and that surround Greenville, and so this morning, we just particularly lift up the neighborhoods in Caddo Mills. Um, we have some family members and uh, church family members that, that live there, and, and there, are, there are people from other churches. And so first, my prayer is that, um, that the Christians in each of those neighborhoods, in each of those communities, would lean forward in their faith, and they would put it on display and look for opportunities to share the good news of Christ. Uh, I pray that they would practically love their neighbors. Amen. Um, Lord, you, you tell us in Acts 17 that you put us where you want us for as long as you want us. And so none of us is in the neighborhood that we live in by mistake, but rather it's a completely sovereignly anointed thing from you. And so I pray that believers in those neighborhoods would embrace what it means to love their neighbor. I pray for the unbelievers in those neighborhoods that, in fact, um, through encouragement, through love, um, through maybe conversations, that, that they would come to know Christ. And I pray that ultimately all of that would would result in glory to you and a blessing to that place. Lord, we pray this morning for um, all of the refugees that have landed in Germany. Um, Lord, we are burdened for every people group across the entire globe to, to hear the good news of Christ and to come to faith in him. Um, but particularly, uh, we want to pray this morning for those who have been displaced, for those who are at a place that maybe they call it home now, but it's not really their home And um, I pray for for those who are there who who have the gospel and who have the love of Christ that they would do all that they can to engage those different people groups um, as it is a prime opportunity uh, for such an an occasion. Uh, Lord, this morning as we consider Galatians 6, uh, I pray that your will be done. Uh, I pray that particularly that if any of us are weary, um, that we would find encouragement in Christ. We humble ourselves before you, and we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. As I mentioned before, we're in Galatians six, and our vote fo- our focus is going to be on verses six through ten. So let me read those aloud, and then we will begin to unpack them. Galatians six, verse six, Let one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith." When I was younger, my father played in a blues band called The Best Kept Secret. Let me tell you, it's pretty cool to have a dad who plays bass. My dad's, me and my brothers are all over six foot, my dad's 5'8". And so uh, it's pretty cool to have a dad who plays in a blues band, plays bass, because all they do is move their neck, you know, they kind of do this thing. And uh, and, and, uh, it was fun going to watch my dad um, play with The Best Kept Secret. Uh, For four years, they featured a guy Uh, who you may have heard of named Joe Jonas. Now, if if you're thinking, how did your older 5'8 dad play bass for the Jonas Brothers, this is a very different Joe Jonas. This is not the same Joe Jonas as the Jonas Brothers. This is, in fact, one who's roughly 50 years older and just very different from any of the Jonas Brothers. This man was awesome, though. He was an awesome old guy who walked with a hand-carved cane, and he had a harmonica belt with his name stitched into it you know you're awesome. Like, you've reached awesomeness in life. He had this black leather harmonica belt, so he'd have a jacket, and when it was time to play harmonica, he'd kind of swing it open, and he'd, and he'd know which key it was, so he had harmonicas in every key, and then in white leather, it said it's Joe Jonas stitched into the black leather. I mean, this is hardcore awesomeness. So he had a hand-carved cane, he had a harmonica belt with his name stitched into it, and he sang a lot like B.B. King. Now, when I mentioned B.B. King in our staff meeting, all the millennials started to Google, who is B.B. King? Can I get a show of hands of who knows who B.B. King is, just so I know what we're dealing with? Because I titled the sermon, The Thrill is Gone, and I, I don't want to know. I'm, so, hands up? Hands up? Okay. Uh, who, who has heard the song, The Thrill is Gone? Okay. So we're, we're halvesies this morning. Okay. That'll work? We can work with that? So one of the best covers uh, that, that Joe would do was a blues song called, The Thrill is Gone. Now, I'm not going to sing it uh, this morning, though though I thought about it, uh, but I can give you background to help you kind of dive into what it was like to hear Joe sing, The Thrill Is Gone. This is a song about a man singing the blues because he and his lady were done. We don't know what happened between the two of them other than she done done him wrong. So every time that Joe took the stage to sing this song, he sang it as though it had just happened to him. I mean, Joe sang it with, with passion and conviction, as though his lady had done him wrong, and maybe they had just broken up before he took the stage. He was convincing. And when people sing in such a way, the people listening begin to identify with the song. They kind of like, I do that, and they, and they bite their lip, and they kind of they start singing along, and they start trying to identify with you know, areas in their life where, where the thrill might be gone. This song in particular has become a bit of a catchline for people in all sorts of different situations. Some say of a relationship, in reference to a relationship, that the thrill is gone. Or they'll say in reference to a job that the thrill is gone. Or just some situation that began in a really enjoyable and fulfilling way, but then went south for whatever reason. People say of that situation, the thrill is gone. Some other ways that we as a culture might say the thrill is gone is by saying the honeymoon period is over or the grass is greener on the other side. It all conveys a notion that what you have used to be good enough, but it isn't good enough now. I want us to hear that as we dive into Galatians this morning, because that's actually our context. What you have used to be good enough, but it isn't good enough now. That helps us to understand the context for the Galatian church. For them, what they had in Christ was now not good enough. The thrill was gone for them. So to understand their context, let's, let's take a look at a few verses. We have a screen up here, uh, a slide that says Galatian context. First, you can turn there and look and read if you'd like, or you can just listen. I know we have all of the kiddos in here this morning, so I have an abundance of slides to try to make it as easy as possible to follow along. So you can turn if you'd like, or you can just listen. It's, either way is fine. First, in 1, 3 through 8, what we see... In this Galatian context, because what I'm preaching this morning is something that's a concluding statement from the end of a book that we don't have context for. So we've got to take at least a minute to figure out where we're standing so we understand the verses that we're looking at. So number one, uh, in verse, chapter one, verses three through eight, the Galatians were new believers who were quickly deserting the God who has called them to Christ by turning to another gospel. So for them, this gospel of Jesus was not quite good enough, and they'd grown weary of it. And so they were turning to what is said, another gospel, even though, as Paul goes on to say, there really isn't another gospel. But that's what they were doing. So that gives you an idea of their weariness and their state. And the second thing is in three one, it says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That, that tells you that they've been bewitched, Bewitched simply means um, someone has taken them from believing, they fooled them, they've sort of um, shifted something to make them begin to believe something that they did not previously believe. Who has bewitched you? In 5.7 it says, you were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? So they've been hindered from obeying the truth, that's our context this morning. And then in 6.12 it says, (coughs) it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ." This was their setting, and we need to understand it as we dive into the Word this morning. In summary, at first, Christ was enough. But the thrill is gone, and Christ is not enough now. They feel like the good life is found in maybe Christ plus something. In this case, it would be circumcision. And because of this, because they are moving in that direction, their thoughts and their actions are moving in that direction, they are growing weary of the gospel life and they're growing weary of doing good. This gives us the context that we need to understand Paul's exhortation at the end of this letter. Things that happened in these people's lives that made them not so fired up about church anymore. Things that happened in these people's lives that made them not so fired up about church people anymore. People had things that happened in these people's lives that had made them not so fired up about church work anymore. Consider maybe you can identify with such things. Life had been hard on them, things were confusing, and they were in this state of weariness. So our roadmap for the morning is: first, we're going to deal with six seven, which is central to all the truth we talk about this morning. And then we're going to look at three application points that are found. We're going to do first verse 8, then verse 6, and then verses 9 through 10, the application points found in each of those. Paul's response to hearing that they have grown weary is a statement of absolute truth. 6 verse 7 says this, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Listen closely. The Galatians are weary of doing good. Imagine if you were weary and someone said, you reap what you sow. Would you be encouraged by that? I mean, let's be honest. If you're weary and you're tired and you're like, oh my gosh, I've just had the craziest week, I had all this different stuff, and someone says, yeah. Yeah. You reap what you sow. How would you respond to that? I really want you to climb into this because that's what Paul is saying to them. You reap what you sow. Does you reap what you sow sound condemning to you? Does it sound harsh? We're going to unpack that this morning because for those who are in Christ, it should sound a very particular way. Paul's solution to their weariness is a statement of universal fact. You reap what you sow. This is a statement that is universally accepted in agriculture agriculture and farming circles. You'll not likely meet a farmer who would say that you can sow one kind of seed and reap another kind of harvest. If this sounds obvious, just just go with me, because it really is. You'll not likely meet a farmer who would say that you can sow one kind of seed and reap another kind of harvest, that you could plant sunflower seeds and reap wheat. To think that you can sow a sunflower seed and reap wheat would be wrong. You all following me here? It's not right. You would be wrong. It's impossible. If you were to take and reap a bunch of sunflower seeds and then notice that wheat came up among them, would your natural conclusion be, oh my gosh, we must have magical seeds. We must have the only seeds in the world where we can sow sunflower seeds and reap both sunflowers and wheat. No, you would probably assume, oh, there was some wheat in there. You wouldn't assume something magical happened and you had the magic beans and you were going to be rich. Why? Why would you be wrong to think that you could sow one kind of seed and reap a different kind of harvest? Because God is not mocked. By his design, by God's design, you reap what you sow. Now you might be thinking, man, whoa, where's the grace, pastor? Where's the grace? You reap what you sow. I thought the good news of the gospel is that you don't get what you deserve. That is grace, but in fact, when you have the Spirit and you reap to the flesh, you, you reap what you sow. This is not something that's simply true for some people. It's universally true. Every culture and every community across the entire face of the earth for all of time can attest to the reality that You reap what you sow. But when we step out of the agricultural and farming realm, when we step out of that, for some reason, some of us begin to think that somehow these absolute rules don't apply to us. Is that you this morning? We we step out of the agricultural realm and this, you reap what you sow, maybe somehow it doesn't apply to us. Maybe it's not universal to us, just to farmers that maybe we can sow seeds of one kind and reap fruit of another. But just because you deceive yourself, facts don't change. Paul, Paul is leading. He's like, okay, they're weary. People are trying to deceive them. And, and he's leading with a statement of universal fact and truth that he will build these other things on. But if you don't get the fact and the truth and you think somehow it's malleable or it doesn't apply to you or maybe it doesn't apply in certain situations, you're not going to get it. Just because you deceive yourself doesn't mean that facts change. Let me say it another way. If you sow blank, you'll reap blank. If you sow blank, you'll reap blank. The blanks are always filled in the same. If you sow X, you will always reap X. If you sow Y, you will always reap Y. However, if you sow X, you will never reap Y. And if you sow Y, you will never reap X. Are you all riveted right now? on just how amazing of a concept that is, it's just fact. You reap what you sow. If you sow blank, you will reap blank. This morning we're going to consider three things that Paul gives to those who are weary of the gospel life. Number one, application point from this reality. The indicative or the imperative is... Uh, the indicative is if you sow blank, you will reap blank. You reap what you sow in the imperative. What you do, how do I respond to that? Number one is sow to the Spirit. Look at verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. For the believer, for the follower of Christ... All of your thoughts and all of your deeds can only be sown in one of two fields. There are no neutral fields. There are no like other fields that you can sow in. All of your thoughts and all of your deeds, you are either sowing to flesh field or spirit field. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap the fruit of the flesh. And the fruit of the flesh is corruption. Paul needs the weary soldiers to hear this. If you sow to the flesh, you will from the flesh reap corruption. You cannot expect to sow the seeds of laziness and reap the fruit of discipline. You cannot expect to sow the seeds of lust and reap the fruit of purity. It's not just unlikely, it's impossible. You cannot expect to sow the seeds of anxiety and fear. And then somehow expect to reap the fruit of peace. Such things are impossible. And notice how inward focused it is to sow to your own flesh. This is a really important point. It is not just even flesh in general, but your own flesh. It's inward focused. So the two fields you can sow to are the field of your own flesh, inward focused, or the field of the Spirit. The beautiful reality for the follower of Christ is that you can, in fact, sow to the Spirit and reap the fruit of the Spirit. Very important point this morning. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. In your flesh, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and the wages of sin is death. That means in your flesh, what you do is sin, and what you get for sin is death, and that's the the end of it, if there's no gospel. But because Christ came to earth, and Christ lived a perfect life, Christ died on the cross, And Christ conquered death, he says, for those who are united to him by faith, you get the gift of the Spirit. And so, what we're talking about this morning is this magnificent, otherworldly possibility now that was previously an impossibility that we can sow to the Spirit. Believers, even if you're weary, you can sow to the Spirit. Paul found this to be extremely important to this church in Galatia that was kind of falling apart. You can sow to the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is, kids, you can say it along with me if you remember the song. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If any of you adults are convicted right now, you should be. That was a gamble and it paid off. The children are learnt. That's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. And in Christ, you have the opportunity now to be able to sow to the Spirit and reap that fruit. I mean, this would just be like really great news. But I think we get so bogged down that sometimes it sounds like it's bad news. Like it's, like it's condemning. Like you reap what you sow. As opposed to you reap what you sow. Perhaps fruit of the Spirit which is great news. What does it mean to sow to the Spirit? To sow to the Spirit is to find where the Spirit aims to produce fruit, which we know, it's not a secret, and invest the seed of your time, your resources, your energy, your thoughts, and your actions in that direction. That's what it means to sow to the Spirit. And when we do We don't reap from the flesh. We don't reap corruption. When we sow to the Spirit, we reap the fruit of the Spirit. And that's actually summed up in verse 8. Look at what it says. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap what? Eternal life. Eternal life. Now, at first glance, this may sound like this. Y'all follow me? Because if you're not blown away by the concept of reaping eternal life, it may be because we're thinking of it in one of two maybe different ways. So, so what I'm getting at is this. It could sound a little bit like, if I sow to the flesh, I'll reap eternal life. That could sound like, do good things now and reap the reward for those good things after you die. Right? That's what it could sound like. Do good things now, reap the reward of those good things after you die. Is that an encouragement? Well, sure it is, right? It says, "Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy." That must mean that in some way, what we do now is in fact laying up treasure in heaven. But something that I've always kind of thought about—I'll just be honest with y'all—I've just I I can't fully wrap my head around this whole thing. Because when I die, I don't have sin, right? So, like, I think there's different treasure in heaven because different people lay up different treasure in heaven. So, like, maybe I'm in a shack and you're in a mansion. But am I going to care if I don't know how to covet? See, this is what the human mind does. We try to backtrack our way out of the doing of the good things and the sowing to the Spirit. We, we, we think like, well, okay, that's great at the end of life, but my Tuesday kind of stinks right now. How, what, what, what benefit is there in sowing to the Spirit right now? It's, it's just, I think it's hard for humans to just simply only say the, 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 the carrot, the, the encouragement at the end is that when you die, it'll be better and things will be good. That is true, but it's not all of it. So we might be thinking this sounds like do good things now, reap a harvest or a reward when you die. Or even worse, it may sound like works-based salvation. Reap what you sow. It can kind of sound like what goes around comes around. What's the difference between that and karma? Well, we're not talking about karma. We're talking about this this fruitfulness of life. This is not works-based salvation. It could sound like the very thing that was making the Galatians weary of doing good. If you do the good, you get the good. And then they start trying to redefine what the good is. So it could sound like works-based salvation. It could sound like just something that happens way off in the distance in the future, so what I think we must, 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 must understand this morning is what is eternal life? It might sound like an easy answer. You might be like, well, I think it's life that's eternal, Pastor. That's true, but, but, but there's some things about eternal life that if we don't get it, we miss what it means to sow to the Spirit. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We will not only one day be transferred to this kingdom of eternal life after we die, but we're, we're transferred now. Upon faith in Christ, upon salvation, you who are in Christ, you who have faith in the finished work of Christ, you who are walking with Jesus, you have eternal life, not just later, but now. John five twenty four says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not will one day have. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. That is part of the good news of the gospel. You sitting here have eternal life. So there's something here that seems to be saying, if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life, yes, later, but also now. You will reap eternal life. For those who have placed their faith in Christ, eternal life begins the moment you believe. You guys are not just waiting to one day be closer to God. Today, you are closer to God. You guys are not just one day waiting to be freed from the bondage of sin. Today, in so many ways, you are free from the bondage of sin. You don't have to go sin. In our flesh, we struggle. Everyone will sin today, rest assured. Don't hear me, don't, don't, don't think, oh man, the bar's a little high now, I'm not coming back here. Everyone sins, everyone struggles with sin, but the reality is you have the Spirit and any time that you have this opportunity to sin, Scripture says that God provides the way of escape. That means that the Spirit is always there to enable you to be able to sow to the Spirit and reap eternal life. So the question that I would like to talk about is what happens when those who are living by the Spirit don't, don't walk by the Spirit? What happens when Spirit filled believers choose to sow to the flesh? What, what, is, what is given up? Because I think that's something that maybe we all struggle with. It's what the Galatians were struggling with throughout the book, uh, throughout this whole letter to the church. He says, walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit. Stay in step with the Spirit, and so do the Spirit. This Spirit-filled life for Spirit-filled people is apparently still a challenge. So we have to answer this question. What happens when professing Spirit-filled believers choose not to walk according to the Spirit, but to sow to the flesh? I did a show of hands earlier, and I won't do one now, but I kind of want to say, do we struggle with this? Do we struggle with this real thing? Because Scripture says that the flesh and the Spirit are opposed to each other, to try to keep the other from doing what the other one wants to do. So that is part of the struggle in the Christian life. The Spirit wins. But sometimes in our flesh we choose not to sow to the Spirit. So my question is, what happens if we who have the Spirit and are experiencing eternal life now still sow to the flesh? And and I would respond first the way that Paul responds. You reap what you sow. Are you following me? It's, it's still just as true. See, see in, in the book, in the letter to the, to the Romans, Paul says, um, oh, well, if I sin and grace abounds, should I sin all the more so that grace abounds all the more? And the answer is by no means. Let it never be. Do not presume upon the grace and kindness of God. To think that because you have grace... This law of sowing and reaping doesn't apply to you, is to presume upon the goodness of God. And all of us do it. And here's what happens when all of us do it one, you will reap what you sow. It doesn't change even though you're a believer. However, number two, you cannot lose the Spirit. The Spirit is given to true believers as a seal. So that on the day of judgment, you have the Spirit as a seal. And so ultimately, for all Christians, the good news of the gospel is you will not ultimately reap what you sow in that you deserve death and you're given eternal life because Christ's righteousness is counted as yours. But those who are sowing to the flesh don't live in that. You can be a Christian who says, In this moment, I'm going to forsake that, crucify Christ all over again, and I'm going to go over here and do whatever I want whenever I want. And I'm a Christian, and I'll be saved, and it'll be fine. And you shouldn't think like that. Because though you cannot lose the Spirit, the next thing is that you can lose the fruit of the Spirit. You can lose the fruit of the Spirit. That should do something to you to hear that. When you sow to the flesh, remember, if you sow blank, you reap blank. When you sow to the flesh, you're not going to reap from the Spirit. It's it's a universal impossibility. Why? Because God won't be mocked. Why? Because everything in the earth, every tree you look at, reminds you that you reap what you sow. Every single flower that buds reminds you that what you reap is what you sow. So I cannot, even as a Christian, sow to the flesh and expect to reap from the Spirit. So that you cannot lose the Spirit, you can lose the fruit of the Spirit. This is what the corruption is. When you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. Corruption is the loss of the fruit of the Spirit. The fourth thing is that you can have consequences of sins that are forgiven. I see this in my kids a lot, where they're really rude to each other. Sometimes, I know I'm a pastor, but sometimes my children are rude um, to each other and other kids, and sometimes I'm rude to them, but, but my kids will be playing and they'll be fighting and you know, maybe one of them hits the other one. Why did you hit them? We don't hit. This is crazy. What, what, what in the world made you think that as a young Christian, you could look at your sister and say, well, that's not Okay. And so at that moment, one of the children could be filled with with shame and guilt, which what we're hoping for the Christian is conviction. And through the conviction, they move towards repentance, and they say to their sibling, I'm sorry. I apologize. And the sibling responds in the spirit and says, I forgive you. And then 10 minutes later, the same sibling hits that sibling again. Okay, let's go through the whole thing again. Apparently the first time it didn't take what should you do? Not hit. What should you say? I apologize. And what should you say? <sighs> I forgive you. Ten minutes later, sibling hits the si- You see what I'm saying? And then it's funny because what happens at the end is um, the sibling who has been hit doesn't want to play with the other sibling anymore. Have you experienced that in your life? You get popped over and over again. You're like, yeah, I forgive you, but I don't want to be around you anymore. That's what happens with the kids. And then the the forgiven sibling, so overwhelmed with the injustice, will come to me and say, Dad, they don't want to play with me. I'm like, it's because you keep hitting them. But I apologized. Well, they forgave you. Then why don't they want to play with me? Because it's a consequence of your sin. You're forgiven of the sin, but there's still a consequence in this life. Like I said earlier, you can't expect to sow the seeds of laziness and reap the fruit of of discipline and productivity. You cannot sow the seeds of lust and expect to somehow reap the fruit of purity. Though your sins are entirely, completely, and totally forgiven, you can have consequences of sins that are forgiven. That's where all the relational brokenness comes from. Every relation, every conflict that ever existed comes from the fact that unmet, of unmet expectations. We sin against each other. Why are there quarrels and fights among you? Because you, you, you have what you don't want or you don't have what you want, so you fight to get it. That's sowing to the flesh. So you can have consequences of sins that are forgiven. And that can happen now, and that can happen eternally. Because we want to bear that fruit now, but we won't bear that fruit if we're sowing to the flesh, and we want to see the, the fruit of that eternally, but there are things that we can, we, can, um, we can jeopardize in the way of eternal blessing in how we live right now. And so I'm not really sure how to fully explain the full extent of eternal realities like that, but I really encourage you, as Paul does, to sit with it. To sit with the reality that you, you can't reap one thing and sow a different thing. The Galatians needed to be reminded that though they have the Spirit, they must also walk in the Spirit and sow to the Spirit. Because the consequences that come from continuing to sow to their own flesh are making them sick. It's making them weary. We don't encourage you to take the supper if you're unrepentant because it says the supper can somehow make you sick. I'm not making that up. I'm not giving you my ideas. That's what it says in Corinthians. For the Galatians, it was making them turn from Christ rather than lean into Christ. They're people who have the Spirit. And they're people who are, who are professing believers, but they're people who are trying to bring in some other things to make it a little better, and the reality is it was making them turn from Christ. So the first thing, and the longest point of the morning, in case you're wondering, is so to the Spirit. The second thing is so to the Word. So so to the Spirit is the thing we have to dive into first because it's like the umbrella that all other good Christian sowing happens under. So anything that you're supposed to do that is good, that Paul's going to encourage this Galatian church in, falls under this umbrella of sowing to the Spirit, and the first, one of the first things he mentions is sowing to the Word. It says in verse 6, let the one who has taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. For those who are weary, you must persevere in the Word of God. Just think about how important that is, because what happens when you grow weary of all the God stuff, or all the Christian stuff, or all the gospel stuff, or all the church stuff? Do you inevitably end up putting your Bible down, or maybe forgetting where you left it? I think that happens for a lot of people. So the very thing that you need, it's like when you need to take medicine, but you're frustrated with the medicine, and then I'm not going to take it anymore, but it's what you need to get. Like, like the word is so much more than just medicine, but but the reality is... like. We, we, we shouldn't put down the very thing we need in the moments of our weariness. You must sow to the Word. God gives to the church with teachers and preachers to help you with that, not to replace your personal time in studying devotionals. You hear that? We don't stand up here week after week to try to, to, try to show you something that you couldn't figure out on your own. Every believer has been given the Word of God, and every believer has been given the Holy Spirit, And man, that's a lot. You can open your word and know what's going on. What we do is we try to help you dig deeper and to understand it even more fully and to help you grow even closer to the Lord. That's the task. That's the shepherding of the flock, and it's unto eternal life. So what we're doing here has an eternal consequence that's huge. So the the Lord of all of this, God gives the church teachers and preachers to help you not to replace your personal time in studying devotionals. Consider what this verse implies. People who are willing to pay someone to help them understand the Word of God are people who take the Word of God seriously. I don't have a personal trainer, right? So if, if I was taking my physical fitness even more seriously, I might be willing to actually pay someone to help me take it more serious, to understand what it means to be healthy. So people who do that, who have a trainer, who go to a class or whatever, you can assume that because they're investing their resources in that, that they are, in fact, very serious about fitness. It's the same with the Word. If we're willing to pay someone to help us understand the Word, it shows that we are people of the Word who are willing to invest in the Word of God because it is central in our lives. And Paul encourages this because of the truth about reaping and sowing. If you sow to the Word, you will reap the fruit of what? What? The Word. If you sow to the Word, you will reap the fruit of the Word of God. But if you neglect the Word of God, you'll never reap its fruit. We'll close our Bibles. We'll get upset. We'll quit doing our devotionals. We'll set them to the side. But you'll never reap the fruit of what's in there if you don't sow to it. Second Timothy 3.16-17 says this. I think it's up here. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, for correction, And for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. If we do not sow to the Word, according to this verse, we will be incorrect, untrained, incomplete, and unequipped. You can't expect those things if you're not sowing to the Word. Weary people must persevere in the Word of God. So we see that for those weary Galatians, number one, they should sow to the Spirit Number two, they should sow to the word. And number three, they should sow to other people. When I'm weary, I don't first think, what can I do for somebody else? I usually first think, what can I not do for anybody else? Give me some space. I'm tired. So this is not a natural inclination. Some seem to have more of a natural inclination than this. But when we're weary, I think it's much easier to sort of like cut people out. I ain't got time to go work at that thing or serve at that thing. I'm exhausted. Verses 9-10, through 10, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. Paul, just hear Paul, he's like, guys, don't give up. Guys, So to the Spirit. I know, I know the Judaizers are coming in here and saying circumcision is important, Jesus isn't enough, but guys, come on, So to the Spirit, sow to the Word of God, and so to other people. Do not give up. Do not become weary in doing good. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. One commentator states, What Paul fears, it seems, is that his converts of Galatia, having begun well, were losing their enthusiasm about life lived in step with the Spirit. In particular, they were beginning to revert from an outgoing type of Christian faith that seeks the welfare of others to a selfish, self-contained religious stance that has little concern for others. So Paul's appeal then is, let us not grow weary of doing good. And what's the motivation? For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Reap what? Well, verse 8 already told us. Eternal life. So what will you reap if you don't grow weary in doing good? You'll reap eternal life. When sowing to the Spirit in due season, that is, when God sees fit, we will reap eternal life. We will reap a greater and a brighter reality of the presence and goodness of our God and the fruit that He aims to produce in our life When we sow to other people, Isaiah 58 explains it as pour yourself out for the afflicted and your gloom, your sadness, your depression will be turned to day, will be turned to sunlight, will be turned to the noonday, as it says. One of the best ways to fight depression is to serve other people, particularly pouring yourself out for the afflicted. The good that Paul speaks of is a good to other people. Don't become weary in doing good, not just in general, but good to other people. And he mentions two groups. First, we see, especially to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And when? As you have opportunity. I want to make sure we understand this phrase. The original language, sometimes when you're studying Scripture, you go to the original language, you see something that you didn't see in reading it in English, and this is one of those cases. Real simply, this as we have opportunity does not mean whenever a random opportunity pops up, because wouldn't that be great if we could hang our hat on that? Yeah, yeah, I'll do good whenever, you know, someone knocks on my door and I happen to have money in my pocket and a whole lot of extra time. Yeah, then I'll do good to other people as I have opportunity. We can kind of, like I said earlier, back ourselves out of what's being called, what we're being called to. So it's not about whenever a random opportunity pops up. It actually means the opportunity that we have in this life. When it says, as we have opportunity, it means in this life. That's important to understand because one is reactive and one is proactive. Am I being called to just sort of reactively do good to people if someone gives me a sign-up sheet and I'm feeling like it? Or am I called in this life to see it as an opportunity? What, What I'm saying is from the moment that we are united to Christ by faith to the point that our temporal life on earth ends, we are to see it, life, as one big opportunity to do good to others. Is that how you view your life? One big opportunity to do good to others, because that's what Paul's saying to the weary Galatian church. Pour yourself out for others. I can't tell you how many times I've 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 sat to talk with someone who is weary and who is hurting and who is struggling, and maybe I'm asking about their situation, and you just watch them say, How's your family doing? What's going on in your life? Because in our weariness, sometimes we get tired of talking about the thing that's making us weary, and we can trust these promises from the Lord. I've seen it over and over again where people in a hard situation say, can we talk about you for a minute? Can you tell me what's going on with your kids? It's one big opportunity to do good, to seek the welfare of others, to put others' interests as more important than our own interests, to count others as more significant than ourselves. Paul emphasizes the need to do this with the household of faith. He says, especially to the household of faith. How out of order would it be to do good to only people you don't even know when there are needs for those with whom you are yoked to in Christ? What hypocrites would the church look like if we did good in our community, we love strangers by meeting practical needs, and then invited them to a church that forsakes the needs of its own? We don't do that. It's stupid. You reap what you sow. So Paul says, Galatians You have to take care of each other. Or to say it another way, weary people have to take care of each other. But notice, it's especially to those in the household of faith, not exclusively. So no one's off the hook. You might be thinking, ooh, I like that, because I generally like my brothers and sisters in Christ better. I like having dinner with, with people who believe what I believe, but it doesn't say Exclusively. So, conversely, what hypocrites we would be if we took only good care of each other while a lost and dying world goes without their needs being met by those who carry out the gospel. The greatest need that a lost and dying world has, you have the solution for. So, we can't become weary in doing good to saved people, and we cannot become weary in doing good to lost people. So, I think it's fitting to close. With an encouragement and a question. First, a question. In what ways have you grown weary? In what areas of your life can you say the thrill is gone? I really want us to take a minute to think through this before we take the supper. Because when we take the supper, what we do is we confess things to the Lord, we confess sin to the Lord, He forgives us. If, if we're reminded to talk to somebody else, it's a, it's a time to keep short accounts. But there's things that make all of us weary, and so I would just ask you this morning, in what ways have you grown weary? In what areas of your life can you say that the thrill is gone? One theologian put it this way, probably the worst enemy of enthusiasm is time. Human beings have a remarkable and sad capacity for getting tired of wonderful things. That's us. Human beings have a remarkable and sad capacity for getting tired of wonderful things. Probably the most obvious example this time of year is spending one day giving thanks for all that we have, and the next day waking up at 4 a.m. to assault strangers to try to get the things we don't have. We have Thanksgiving, and then we have Black Friday. One whole day, so thankful. Look at all we have. The next day, it's like you will die if you do not get whatever happens to be 30% 30% cheaper than it was the day before. I would encourage you to sleep in. Yes. You agree. I don't, I don't know if my wife will agree with me on that. I'll, I want to play that, play that safe there. I'm not, I'm not saying you're evil if you do Black Friday shopping. I'm just saying, look at the. It explains this, di, this dichotomy here, right? It explains this thing where we're just so thankful. And then just, just, just moments later, we're not. Another way to, to illustrate this is the example of a child opening a gift on Christmas morning, being filled with elation at the receiving of this much anticipated toy. And what happens, parents? We all know what happens only to push it aside and play with the box that it came in by the end of the day. We've all experienced that. How many parents have sat and said, We spent hundreds of dollars, boxes would have been cheaper. Easily, how easily, how easily human beings go tired of wonderful things. So where are you weary of doing good? I want to encourage you to be honest. Perhaps it's in your marriage. Perhaps you're weary of being a husband. Perhaps you're weary of being a wife. Maybe it's in your parenting. Perhaps you're weary of being a dad. or weary of being a mom. Perhaps you're weary of your job we get really down into the weeds as a church perhaps, perhaps you're weary of your life group or weary of life group shepherding become weary of deaconing we can become weary of good things or weary of serving in the ministry serving in the nursery weary of evangelism weary of time in the word and even weary of prayer we have very real challenges in this world That will lead us to potentially becoming weary of good things and growing cold toward Christ. But what Christ gives us is the Holy Spirit. And in our weariness, we must not forget the power and the reality that exists in the Spirit. Paul's encouragement to the weary is first a statement of fact and then three things, at least in these verses. He says a lot of other stuff. Paul's encouragement to the weary is, number one, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. It could sound cold, but man, it's so true. No one's ever proven that wrong. So the, the application that he gives is sow to the Spirit, so to the Word of God, and so to other, other people. To some, what you reap is what you sow may sound like condemnation, but my hope after this morning and some time in the Word, and maybe over the course of the week as it runs its course is that for those who are in Christ, you reap what you sow should sound like divine opportunity for divine eternal blessing. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful for Christ. As we prepare to take the supper, we're thankful for one who stood in our place, and all of those things that we deserved, we didn't get because of grace. The wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth and all of us apart from Christ are unrighteous. But Lord, in Christ, our righteousness is found in Christ and your perfect righteousness is counted as ours. That is a remarkable reality. But my prayer, Lord, is that it doesn't lead us to make foolish conclusions about reaping and sowing. I pray that we would stay the course during our lifetimes. Seeing our lifetime as a big opportunity to sow to the Spirit, to sow to the Word of God, to sow to other people. Lord, we're thankful that every Sunday, and we, as we gather, we have a moment to reckon with the, the massive blessings that we have in Christ. And reaping what you sow is a blessing, not a curse, for those who are in Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we take the supper, I want to read Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. Just to make sure we're very clear on what we've talked about this morning. <laughs> Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Sorry, that's not right. I skipped a line. For those who live according... Glad I caught that. I could have been leaving here confused. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And then listen to what it says. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. As we take the supper, the supper is for those who are believing. And if you find yourself this morning not believing and hearing this bad news that those who are in the flesh cannot please God, I encourage you to come up afterwards, to talk to someone around you about what it means to have Christ so that that's not true for you. It goes on to say, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you.